the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Good afternoon, Northern California. Welcome. Just about five minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. as we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. Keeping you company Monday through Friday at this time, as we typically do, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. Well, the big news, of course, driving the markets this week, as it has for probably the last several weeks since the administration first made the announcement, they're going to look at some serious and stiff tariffs on things like aluminum and certainly steel. Now the possibility of durable goods entering into the fray as well. Joining us now with some insights and observations is the principal of Vitucci and Associates, best-selling author, 30-plus year retirement planning specialist, Pat Vitucci. Pat, always great to have you on the show. And Pat, as the president has made these announcements, readying essentially trade sanctions against China, which China says will result in a trade war that they say nobody will benefit from. And certainly, if anything, the markets are signaling they're not very happy. We've seen over two thousand point drop in the markets just since the high of january the 26th well as controversial as this is i happen to be a fairly strong proponent of the tariffs let's face it for the last many decades other countries have been eating our lunch and we stand by and say well that's fair because after all we're a very affluent country and you know it's not fair that we have all this money and all this affluence well let's look at it I think it's our capitalistic system that lays the motivations for our success. And we shouldn't go around the world apologizing. And let's look at the rules. We all want fair rules, right? When you play Monopoly, everybody follows by the same rules, right, Craig? Even you, who is a Monopoly expert and can probably beat most of us, except me, of course. I, I own Boardwalk, by the way. That's standard. You, 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 you get that right from the first roll of the dice. But when we sell our goods to China, they very nicely charge us 25% tariffs. And when they send all their stuff to us, we charge them 2%. Let's think about that. 25% versus 2%. And how many presidents have said in the past this is fair? While the Midwest, the Rust Belt, continues to deteriorate and lose great-paying jobs, our steel industry is pretty much toast. We sit back and say, oh, well, that's okay, because, you know, we need all this business. And so here we have a president. He ran on a campaign of creating jobs. Is it a tactic? That's my theory. Will we come to some modicum of compromise where China reduces their 25% tariff down to eight and we increase ours to four? You know, that's probably more in the realm of compromise. We are broke. Our debt ratios are equal to our GDP. We're $20 trillion plus. We'll hit another trillion dollars in the next year or so. How long can we play this game of let's ignore the debt, let's ignore the imbalance of trade, and continue to create lots of hamburger flipping jobs 
and lose all these great manufacturing jobs. It just doesn't make sense. And you can't ignore the long-term ramifications of this kind of incredible unfairness, incredible imbalance. Will a car cost more money? Of course it will. Will Walmart be affected because of the prices of all that stuff we buy that comes from China be affected? Of course it will. But as it's been said many times, Craig, if you don't make steel, you don't have a country. I mean, that is the backbone industry of any country. And God forbid we have a war of some sort and we don't have a steel manufacturer and we're dependent on some other foreign country that doesn't like us anymore and they cut off our steel production. How critical is that? So I think it's tactic that will be dealt with. This is a negotiating tactic, I think. Yes, it will affect our cost of goods and services, but you can't ignore the fact that we are broke, absolute broke, and we continue down this road. We will be a third world country in our lifetime. And this is absolutely a bold move. This man is not a politician. He doesn't care what the political wind says. It's not popular. Let's see how this all plays out. China needs us. We need China. So you're looking at this as something that has long-term benefits, but clearly some short-term ramifications. I mean, investors, economists, policymakers are all saying not a good idea. Don't poke the bear. China is the biggest creditor to the United States. I wonder what happens. They're probably not going to dump all of those government bonds tomorrow. But what happens in that arena as well? And do we continue to see short term? And what does short term look like in terms of volatility on Wall Street? Is this something that takes a year to settle down? Is it five years, 10 years? What do you think? When you have the flu, you take that rotten tasting medicine. We've got to take this medicine. It doesn't taste real good. It doesn't smell real good. It doesn't feel real good. But I think you've got to face the reality that our numbers are pathetic. It's scary. Our congressional people are myopic, short-sighted, and not good business people. They make bad business deals. And whether you want to talk about NAFTA or the Pan-Pacific Agreement or any of the other agreements we've agreed to, they've all been negatively impacting our industries. It's long overdue, Craig. I think we need to step up and say, okay, we're the biggest consumers on the planet. Love us or hate us, we buy more stuff than anybody else on the planet. Two-thirds of our GDP, our gross domestic product, is driven by consumers. If our consumers stop buying that Chinese stuff, they'll come back to the bargaining table and say, well, let's talk about it. That is the tough stance uh, this president has taken. Could this also potentially help us rein in some of the ongoing problems that we've had with China that, frankly, Washington, D.C. has continuously failed to address? And I'm speaking specifically, Pat, of things like the theft of American intellectual property, software, technology patents, things of that sort. We design it. We send them the plans to manufacture it. They copy it and sell it under some other name, and that's been going on for decades. And sadly, of course, that has been a pretty serious impact on the U.S. economy and U.S. manufacturing and corporations as well. Billions and billions of dollars have gone the route that you just spoke of. We don't tell China to step up and act like a good citizen of the planet, and we continue to let them willingly do criminal things because, after all, they buy our debt. So this symbiotic relationship of they need us and we need them is absolutely true, but their ability to to dump solar panels or dump industry on us and buy up an industry funded by the Chinese government until they put us out of business, 
Now they have us by the short hairs and they say, okay, well, now that you don't have a, a solar industry, you don't have a steel industry or an aluminum industry or whatever, we get to now dictate what the price is. And guess what? It's going to be a whole lot higher than what we uh, put you out of business on there because now we own that industry. So it's a tactic that's worked very successfully with past presidents who have looked the other way and didn't have the, the courage to say, no, we're not playing this game any longer. And you're not going to have these government-funded subsidy industries for many years to essentially put us out of business. And they can pick and choose any, any industry that they want tomorrow. It's worked up until now. And I think it'll result in some compromise as it always does. Now, certainly for listeners that are months, maybe just a handful of years away from retirement, this raises some questions, both in terms of the volatility on Wall Street and whether or not there's a potential shift taking place here in relationship to things like inflation. The Fed met this week to discuss that very topic. We'll talk about what they decided and what it means for your financial life. So we'll pause here, get you updated on some traffic, then come back to more of our conversation with Pat Vitucci as we talk about terror. Tariffs, trade, and Wall Street on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as our look at the world of money and you continues, Pat, of course, the other big news this week, in addition to the question of um, tariffs and trade wars with China, the Fed met. And as they did so, as we anticipated, they have decided to once again raise the interest rates. That, of course, in a long-term effort to try and stave off inflation. This seems, though, to be sending some mixed messages potentially to consumers that, at one hand, the Fed is concerned about inflation. But on the other hand, we have the administration talking about trade wars that may ultimately mean an increase in prices of durable goods, things of that sort. And so now the question becomes for retirees, folks that are there or soon to be there, what do they need to be thinking about? What do they need to be doing in terms of their investment choices? Well, certainly higher interest rates are designed to slow this fantastic GDP growth that are projected to be upwards of 3% for this year. And we'll see how the numbers actually come in. The unemployment rate is at historic lows. The economy is is humming and it's firing on all cylinders. And so the Federal Reserve's only tool in their toolbox is to raise interest rates. We saw a one quarter point raise this past week. We'll probably see three more this year if current patterns continue. Surely the consumer is going to be impacted. If you're going to buy a house, you should have bought it a month ago when rates were a little lower. They're inching up. They're still, by historical levels, still low. A 4% change is still a reasonably good rate. My parents bought their first house. I think it was 6.5% way back in the 50s and 60s. And by historic trends, 4.5% in that range is still a very attractive number. Auto loans, all the other consumer products we buy with loans tagged to them will be inching up. But you know, we've had low rates, Craig, for what, since 08, since the Great Recession, when Federal Reserve had the, had the lower rates basically to zero to motivate folks and companies to go out and spend and buy stuff and buy buildings and equipment, capital needs, et cetera, to fund their companies, fund their households. And it worked. It worked. We got out of that Great Recession in fairly good order. We certainly added to the debt levels, which has been the um, ongoing bad news. I don't want to demean that $20 trillion debt load. We've got to start chipping away at that. Interest rates are, are something we're going to continue to see rising throughout the year. And I think we've got to 
pattern our buying habits accordingly and live with maybe heading towards 5% a mortgage here pretty soon. Understandably makes that monthly payment a whole lot higher. This is not something that not we were not expecting. We've been expecting it for a long time. Frankly, we thought it was going to be several years ago, but given the laggard results of the economy, now finally picking up, we need to slow this economy down so we don't have this uh, out-of-control inflation like we had under President Carter, where, where inflation was 12 13 14% per year. That was not a good environment to live under. The Mortgage Bankers Association, Pat, of course, had reported that refinance applications are down 5%, and I suppose some of that is tied into the uptick in the prime rate. And while that might have a bit of a cooling effect on refis, I would suspect, if anything, could this spell a little bit of relief for consumers here in the Bay Area? Higher mortgage rates means higher money being paid every month. Might that have some impact on housing values here in the Bay Area, housing prices? We know certainly there continues to be a huge shortage. While this might not be real good news for places like Stockton and Modesto, it continues to be a boon here in the Bay Area. It's hard to see the Bay Area quieting down. We're blessed with such fantastic economic news on every front. So the nine counties of the Bay Area is absolutely booming. I can't imagine a quarter point is going to deter a lot of buyers. The inventory of homes is extremely low. So when a house comes on the market, it gets bid up. So instead of maybe 25 bids, there'll be, you know, 18 bids or something. It's still going to be ridiculously frothy until, of course, it gets up above five or in the five and a half range, perhaps. But I think the demand is, is so high in the barrier. In other parts of the country, I think it'll slow and curtail the, the refi, certainly. But in the barrier, I, I, I don't see a quarter point or even a half a point having any major impact on the supply and demand of homes. And as long as Silicon Valley is red hot and the biotech world is red hot, and the entertainment industry is red hot. Our ag business continues to be extremely strong. So California is blessed with a, with a diversified industries, and I, I don't see California quieting down at least in the next year or so while the Federal Reserve inches rates up as much as three-quarters of a point or even maybe a, a, one whole point. It's going to take a whole lot to slow this economy down. So that's the good news, bad news if you're – in my view, if you're looking for looking for a house, you ought to buy it yesterday because I think uh, short of any shock to the system, a geopolitical event like a North Korea, Iran, Iraq, or Trump falls on his face and gets impeached or you know, any, any, any shock to the system, I don't think condition of the housing market in the Bay Area is going to change all that much with a couple quarter point rises. Definitely, though, it would appear for investors that emerging markets, both at home and some at abroad, as well as technology, really seems to be the place to go. Clearly, the old retail sector is kind of on its last legs. My goodness, this week news now that Toys R Us is going out of business. And of course, their woes are added to the likes of some venerable names down through the years. Pennies, Sears, Kmart, on the list goes. Malls across America are shuttering their doors. A big paradigm shift, Pat, from the old brick and mortar to, quite frankly, people's luxury of being able to shop in their house coat and slippers from the convenience of their own home. Yeah, this is nothing short of a seismic shift in buying patterns of the consumer. And uh, who would have thought this would happen at this fast pace when you see all those stalwart names that have been around for 100 years plus 
just on the heels of going bankrupt, whether it's Sears and JCPenney and, and Macy's and now Toys R Us have been around for a lot of years. The comfort of being in your own home, in your bedroom slippers, buying that toy for your niece, nephew, or your child is a whole lot easier than fighting traffic and having it delivered tomorrow morning on your doorstep is certainly a lot more attractive. Anytime where there's giant uh, margins of profit, and Bezos, to his credit, has honed in on the giant margin of profit in retail ads to that good or that service, they've taken the opportunity to say, hey, we can do this cheaper by having these giant warehouses out in the boondock somewhere and um, the whole computerization of uh, logistics of getting that toy to your front door has created economies of scale then we'll continue to see that sadly you see these names have been around for our whole lifetime and certainly beyond it's the reality of where we are today and it's moving at an ever-changing pace that i think we'll continue to see Interesting tell in the paradigm shift in that Bloomberg is reporting that there are talks taking place right now that, in fact, all those locations currently owned by Toys R Us may be bought up by Amazon. If you've got questions related to your portfolio, maybe you're wondering if you're actually keeping up with the times in relationship to so many of these changes and whether or not you are poised to head into the kind of retirement you've always wanted, why don't you take advantage of that complimentary financial health and retirement plan review in any of the Bay Area offices of Vitucci and Associates? Likely there's one very near you and there's no cost or obligation. Now to schedule your appointment, well that's easy too. Simply go online to don't invest and forget Com. There you can schedule your appointment, meet with any team member of the Vitucci and Associates Advisory Team, take a look at where you're at today, where you'd like to be, and perhaps make some recommendations to help you along the way. Again, schedule your appointment at DontInvestAndForget.com. That's DontInvestAndForget.com, or you can call toll-free 888-PLANWISE, 888-PLANWISE. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Tolerance. It's a term bantied about with great abandon these days, especially by those on the left. Liberals who wish for freedom of expression and understanding for all peoples of all persuasions, hawking all agendas, eh, with the sole caveat that tolerance is tossed unceremoniously out the window when it comes to those deemed by the so-called tolerant left to be intolerant. And by intolerant, they mean pretty much anyone who doesn't tout their party line or embrace their body politic. A new book out that gives us the inside story to this issue of an attempt by the liberal left to silence everyone else. The book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. Its author, well-known political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, let's talk a bit about this attack on free speech coming from kind of an unusual end of the political spectrum. I mean, aren't these the same people, the students of yesterday and the teachers of today that began the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus in the 1960s? Yes, exactly. And I I call the people in the book the illiberal left to distinguish them from what I consider just the average Democrat or even your average principled liberal who still really holds firm to those ideas of tolerance and diversity and free speech that you were just referring to. Uh, and, And that's what makes, I think, what they're doing that much more troubling is because on the one hand they still claim to value these things while at the same time 
they are using all sorts of different tactics to silence the debates, to say certain things, you know, certain debates are over, that we aren't allowed to talk about certain things anymore. And if you do talk about them, you will be labeled with some toxic moniker that's you know, going to make you radioactive, basically, to the rest of society. And, and how do they live with themselves in the sense, and, and, and you've had a chance to deal with both ends of the political spectrum, both as a reporter and news analyst. There's this sense, I think, that some of them are out there promoting the same kind of stereotypes that they themselves purport to hate. Right. Well, I think that, that they are able to do it because they really do believe that what they're doing is a righteous act. They, they believe that they have the capital T truth, that they know what is right, and that there really is nothing to debate, and so that they don't they, they don't feel that there is a need to, for example, treat somebody who opposes same-sex marriage as anything other than a homophobe or a bigot. And and so you know, even though I I do support same-sex marriage, I, I recognize that there are people who don't that are people of goodwill, and that you know, and then that the best way to engage people is to. Um, persuasion, uh, you know, rather than coercion, rather than trying to silence them. And the illiberal left doesn't see it that way. They really do believe that the righteous act is to just really sort of isolate that person from society by saying, no, you know, you're, you're a homophobe and, uh, you know, we don't we don't even need to talk to you about it. Yeah, the irony is if they believe so strongly in their position, you would think that the notion of civility and honesty in public discourse in the end would allow the, the quote-unquote truth to win out, but yet they don't apparently see it that way. And I have to wonder if there's almost a sense of, of compartmentalizing going on here. You, you resided inside of the Clinton administration as a Clinton appointee from 92 to 98. From that kind of uh, viewpoint, from the kind of the inside looking out, is there a lot of compartmentalization that goes on? I don't. I, I don't think that they really feel a need to compartmentalize because, like I said, they really do believe that they believe so strongly in what they're doing that they, they feel like that they're on the right so-called right side of history or the, you know the right side of the issue, and and so that they. You know, there's, I, there's this example. This just happened last month of a uh, Christina Hoffsummer, who's she's an AEI scholar, and she came. She went to Georgetown and Overland universities in the same month to speak on what she calls equity feminism. It's her version of feminism, which is different from liberal feminism. And you know, she was treated almost like a terrorist coming to campus. It was, you know, people. She had to have. Security and they had people there holding signs that they're trigger warnings, so they were being triggered. You know, this is going to cause them some sort of emotional distress and danger. And there were signs for a safe room where you could go and and be safe while she's, you know, on campus talking to the campus Republicans about her her vision of feminism and just treating treating differing ideas as actually dangerous. You know, that that's I think that that is what is. It takes it away from just your basic intolerance of, uh, I can't hear this, that it's actually posing a danger, and, need, and, and they try to get the speeches canceled, and if they can't get the speeches canceled, then they try to, they're very disruptive, um, or they try to delegitimize the speaker by making them seem like they're saying these horrific things when all they're doing is expressing a different opinion. And the irony is that seems to be kind of the, out of the arsenal of, uh, of tools that they utilize seems to be some of the more popular approaches, stigmatization, uh, delegitimizing, as you're saying, sometimes even going as far as, as dehumanizing. Uh, many of your colleagues, some of which um, as, as commentators that appear on other networks, I won't mention MSNBC, uh, make much game of this sport of dehumanizing those that have differing opinions. Yeah, I mean, dehumanizing is, 
the tactic you see in particular towards uh, conservative women or uh, non-white conservatives. So it's basically trying to turn them into, you know, non non beings. You don't even need to take them seriously. And with with conservative women, they will do it through. She's not really a woman. They don't speak for women. The only women who speak for women are pro-choice Democrats, um, that they are, you know, bush in a skirt. Uh, They're sort of, you know, female impersonators. These are some of the the words that have been used to describe uh, conservative women. Or they objectify them, which is another form of dehumanization, which actually what is so noxious about this is that it's feminists who have came up with this theory that, dehumanized, objectifying women is dehumanizing, and it's actually very effective. It's a very effective way to to make people not take a woman seriously. So if you focus obsessively on her body or her looks or what she's wearing, as they did with, for example, Sarah Palin, and turn her into a sex object, then voters start to, you know, not see this person any longer as even a potentially serious person. They just see them as a sex object. And so these are the kind of tactics that they use, even though they say they stand for women. What I don't understand is, and maybe you can shed some light on this, why do mainstream liberals give give sort of a get-out-of-jail-free card to some of these commentators and, and so-called news reporters who, who use this kind of language. For example, you mentioned about uh, references to people like uh, either Sarah Palin or uh, Michelle Bachman as, as bimbos. I think at one time didn't Ed Schultz even use that yeah. demeaning term uh, directed toward you? And, and, and mm-hmm. when it's done, the liberal left seems to look the other way. But can you imagine anyone on Fox News making a reference to, say, Hillary Clinton as the um, Democrat candidate bimbo and getting away with it? No, of course not. I mean, there's a double standard. And they have started to be shamed by it, and so they have some groups have started to recognize that they have to condemn uh, condemn this when it's happening to conservative women. They always kind of do it in this grudging way, you know, like, oh, yeah, I guess we have to... You know, we have to stand up for this, but you know they're not. But but for a long time they didn't, and a lot of them were participants in it. That's the thing that a lot of the people who were making the misogynist attacks against Sarah Palin were self-described feminists. So it, you know, it, it, it's and so it's, it's sometimes it's them, and then other times it's sitting by, you know, while Keith Olbermann, while he was you know sitting atop his perch at MSNBC, is doing it. Whether it's Chris Matthews that is doing it. Uh, they, you know, they just sit there and they, they don't, they, they just either ignore it or they, um, you know, maybe will find something to complain about now and then. But it doesn't cause the full-scale hysteria that you see, like what you saw, what happened when, when Rush Limbaugh had, you know, had uh, called Sandra Fluck, you know, a slut, which he, he apologized. Well, actually, I don't know if he apologized, but he was treated as if he had to, uh, you know, lose his show over that, Right. You know, and this is one incident versus continuous incidents of liberal men that are completely ignored. What's ironic about this is just how insidious and widespread all this is. As you delineate inside the pages of the silencing, we, we find this approach to, um, again, just the, 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 the closing down of civil dialogue, the stigmatization, dehumanization of the opposition, so to speak, that occurs not only on college campuses, as we referred to a moment ago. It's taking place uh, certainly within uh, politics, within the, the, the 
Democrat Party. We see it taking place in in the news arena. It's almost as if there's there's no free um, antagonizing zone where actual discourse and exchange of, of ideas can take place anymore without fearful of of suddenly coming under attack or having even your very legitimacy being questioned. Right. I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah, and I just did want to clarify that Rush, I just checked that Rush Limbaugh did apologize to her, which is like one extra step that we don't often see by the, uh, the men, uh, you know, on the left who just are doing this with in, impunity and are never are never criticized. So, you know, I do think that um, the delegitimizing that's going on, which I get into in the in the book so much, is just is such an effective tactic to uh, to avoid debate, uh, to, to to not have to. You know, somebody says something and you don't have to engage them on what they actually said. Uh, instead, you can just pick out something about them that other people are not going to like. Other people do not want to listen to somebody who, who they've been convinced is a racist. They do not want to listen to somebody who they've convinced, have been convinced of is, is an Islamophobe or, you know, or a race denier, as they call the people who question the campus race. Statistics, and it's just kind of neither conversation enders, not conversation starters. It's not encouraging robust debate, uh, and and which is really how we get knowledge in society. Uh, instead, it's encouraging really just just accepting what a certain group of people have decided is the truth, and we're not supposed to question it. Kirsten Powers, our guest today on this edition of Lifeline. We're talking about her new book called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The new book, by the way, just released by Regnery Press, available at Bay Area bookstores as well as through Amazon.com. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation with Kirsten Powers as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to Lifeline. Our special guest today, well, you certainly know her as a political pundit, news analyst, USA Today columnist, and Fox News contributor, and now a new book called The Silencing. We're visiting today with Kirsten Powers. Kirsten, you relay an example of how insidious all of this is taking place on college campuses in terms of almost uh, sort of grooming students into this sense of, um, of intolerance uh, by talking Talking about um, Lafayette College and, and their so-called bias response team, uh, share this example with listeners from the book, if you would, and then give us a sense of just how widespread is this mentality across campuses in America today? Well, th- these kinds of things are starting to crop up, and I expect them to probably spread, which is the idea that, you know, if you, something on campus happens that you feel was somehow offensive you know, some sort of bias, whether it's a racial bias or you know, gender bias or something, that you can report people for it. Uh, and that it's treated as if it's uh, almost like a bodily harm that has occurred to you. And this is something that comes up throughout the the book in, in, in various stories, which was particularly alarming to me, which was that, you know, taking offense or even just disagreement or having to see something or hear something that you don't like is really often described as a violent event. That's the language that's used. I talk about the professor at the University of California, Santa Barbara, who physically attacked a pro-life student who was part of a peaceful demonstration and told the police officer when she was arrested that she was, quote-unquote, triggered, which is a word that comes up throughout the book, that that she was triggered by having to encounter this peaceful demonstration, that she shouldn't have to see something like this, that it, it, you know, this is supposed to be her safe space. This is a professor 
um, you know, who doesn't want to have to encounter a view that she doesn't like, and that and treats it just the expression of the view as an attack. And so this is the mentality that we have that is spreading, which is which is that, you know, in that case, that's an outlier. Usually, it doesn't involve somebody physically attacking somebody. The response, but there there are other ways the person is then silenced because. You know, they say, "Well, I just, I, I can't. You know, I just, it, it was, I can't, I can't see that. I can't hear that. I can't." You know, the irony is, is that you, when you, breakdown. when you put this in context, for those of us that are old enough to remember, a, a lot of the new liberalism today, whether it be on college campuses or in the mainstream media, sounds like a lot of the old McCarthyism of the 1950s. Yes, yeah, very similar. And it's there's, yeah, there's an aspect of who you talk to also. Uh, is is indicative of, of who you are versus what you say or what you think. And I experienced this actually when my book came out, when uh, I gave excerpts of the book to various publications, including the Daily Beast, which I write for and is considered a, a, you know left of center, but also to a publication at the Heritage Foundation, which is conservative. And because of that, I had all these uh, liberal lefties coming after me saying that I, you know, because I had allowed the Heritage Foundation to run an excerpt that I, you know, that that just proved that I was a right-wing hack and my book was <laughs> somehow backed by the Heritage Foundation. Some, you suddenly know, you're a shill, shill for the left, or for right. the right, rather. <laughs> yeah, but, but never mind that, like, I ran excerpts in the Daily Beast. You know what I mean? It doesn't really, it's just, they, they just look for some kind of relationship that they can use to prove that you're a secret, you know, closet conservative. I have a bunch of examples in the book of how they really use this against journalists to scare journalists to, into not pursuing stories because they will be accused of being closet conservatives because they are investigating the Obama administration or they're investigating Republicans. But if they investigate, uh, you know, the the right the, the right people, then uh, then they're gonna if they investigate Republicans, they're gonna be fine. But if they investigate Democrats, they're not. So you'll have people like Cheryl Atkinson, who award-winning investigations of both parties. But all you'll hear about from the liberal left is how she investigated the Obama administration, and therefore she's this, she's literally this partisan, uh, you know, conservative hack. You know, the irony is this agenda, though, just bubbles so 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 uh, close to the surface, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, for example, uh, Chris Hayes recently did what he called a Hillary Clinton study guide for millennials, where he touted all the wonderful things that she apparently had done before most of them, quite frankly, had ever even been born. And yet, can you imagine if, say, Fox News attempted to do a, a new millennials guide to Ben Carson, what, what, what kind of response you would see from the left? Right. Well, there's total double standard. I mean, you can't. There's, there, you know, there's this idea that, uh, you know, they spent all this time. I have a whole chapter on it, trying to delegitimize Fox News. Uh, the White House did, saying, you know, they're not a real news organization, and uh, and and telling other news organizations that they shouldn't treat them as real news organizations. And meanwhile, MSNBC is doing this times a million, you know, and, and I'm not, I actually, I think MSNBC is free to do that. I don't, and if, and, if, and if George Bush had ever come out and said they weren't legitimate, I would have been the first person to defend them. You know, I don't, I think that they, they're, they're, they're free to, you know, have, have whatever kind of programming they want to have. And, uh, and I, and I don't think that that means that, you know, if Chris Hayes does something on one show that, uh, you know, a reporter or a host of another show is somehow held accountable for that, right? I mean, like, the same way, like, they try to merge everything at Fox together. It's like, well, because there's Sean Hannity, then that means that Brett Baer can't be trusted. Well, those two things have nothing to do with each other. You know, they're completely different shows. 
and um, and one is an expressly an opinion show. And so, yeah, there's, just not, there's an absolute double standard where you had Obama administration officials leaving and going to work for MSNBC after the same people who said that Fox was not a legitimate news organization. Help us understand something here. Um, how much of this, in your opinion, is, is just based on that sense of unfamiliarity breeding contempt? In other words, that it's easy to either dislike or hate what you don't know or don't understand. So many people, particularly for the, the, the political world inside the Beltway, don't have an opportunity to really get to know, quote unquote, the enemy or the other side. And so as a result, because of that, that sense of ignorance, we'll call it, uh, that, that, that they sort of have this 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 deepening abiding sense of acrimony shown toward those who don't share the same opinion yeah yeah i think that there's i, I there's definitely an element of that it's very hard to sustain these the, the these ideas for example that every single person who opposes same-sex marriage is a homophobe if you actually have friends or people that you're opposed to who have sincere religious beliefs that lead them to oppose same-sex marriage, and, and you can see, you know, that they, they aren't homophobes. I'm not saying that the person's never a homophobe, but I'm just saying that that's, you know, that, that, at least in my experience, the people that I know, that that's not what's driving them. What's driving them is a religious belief. So I do think there's that. Um, but I don't, the, the problem with the liberal left is they really aren't interested in, <laughs> in knowing people who are different than them, and they, because they are so convinced that they are right, that they, it just does not seem to have occurred to them that, uh, that they could be wrong. But, you know, I used to be pretty close-minded, and I was definitely, you know, I'd worked in the Clinton administration, Democratic politics, very liberal family, and uh, I had a lot of these, these ideas as well, that I had it all figured out. And basically, working at Fox News, and, and then later in life, conversion to Christianity, where I started being around, obviously, a lot of Christians and more conservatives, uh, you know, it did slowly break down my my prejudices. Frankly, I mean, they were prejudices uh, where I, could, you know, I didn't necessarily change my political views, but I was able to see, oh, you know, there is a debate to be had here. Uh, there are things to talk about, and, and th- these are legitimate views. They're just different than mine. So at the end of the day, while it's it's often kind of surprising to see how closed-minded so many so-called open-minded liberals really are, there is hope, and 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 I think sometimes the opportunity to the degree to which it's possible. And I'm just thinking about people that are engaged in the day-to-day business of going about uh, their affairs to engage with people in mm-hmm. a loving, legitimate, intellectual fashion concerning the issues of the day, not with heated exchange and raised voices, but just just an, an open-minded exchange of ideas can sometimes eventually bring people around to another point of view. I think so, yeah. It, it's often slow, so I think people get discouraged. Uh, you know, I think it's not, it's not like you're going to meet somebody one time and that's going to happen, but I do think over time, and I've had a lot of friends tell me that, it's, you know, knowing me also has changed their views on some things, or even, you know, they have their, their ideas about what a liberal is like or what a liberal thinks. And, and, you know, so I think, you know, it's been beneficial in both directions. Well, the book certainly is very engaging in helping us to not only better understand what's taking place here, the dynamic between the two sides, so to speak, but also, I think, uh, uh, gives us a sense of hope that we can engage in some dialogue and eventually see some change. Kristen Powers, the book is called The Silencing, How the Left is Killing Free Speech. The book, published by Regnery Press, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, Regnery Press, a part of the company that owns this fine radio station. 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.